Greetings and welcome to this week's performance of My Favourite Flop. At this time, we ask that you turn up the volume on all cell phones, laptops and car stereos as loud as possible. And now, sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Hey, boys and girls, we are back with our third two doche of <laughs> season two. We love these episode pairs, and we're so excited that you've joined us again. Yeah, so we're actually going to get straight into what have you been listening to, Bobby? Oh, that's me. Oh, my goodness. Well, I decided this week, and it is on theme. We'll get into the theme a little bit later. We're going to see if you, you kids can guess it. But I decided to listen to the revival of The Color Purple. Ooh. Ooh, indeed. Did you see that production, Christina? I didn't. I saw the first one. Ah, okay. You saw the first one. Mm-hmm. So I did, I did not see the first one. I attempted to try to get into the score of the first one, and it wasn't doing it for me. But obviously, this revival was critically acclaimed. You know, John Doyle directing it, and then obviously the breakthrough standout performance of Cynthia Rivo. So I had to go. I saw this production three times on Broadway. Oh, wow. Okay. Like, with every Shug. So I started with Jennifer Hudson. I got to see Heather Headley. And then I got to see Jennifer Holiday, And it was a magical wow. experience every time. And when Cynthia came out to do I'm Here at the end of the show, it was just mm-hmm. like, you're jumping to your seat before she even finishes. Like, before she even starts singing the note. You're like, woo, standing ovation. It was one of those just experiences that... You know, you people talk about seeing Barbara Streisand and Funny Girl, or they talk about seeing, you know, these legendary performers throughout history. And it was like witnessing that in person. You know, it was like you felt goosebumps. There was like electricity in the air. And going back and listening to it this week, I got all of that back. I'm like, yeah, this was a magical experience. And I'm so glad that I got to experience it live Mm -hmm. three times in New Mm -hmm. York. Cynthia Revo has an incredible ability to build a song and take you to an unexpected place. It is a very unique character trait and skill of hers. That's really cool. I didn't realize you'd saw it three times. I wish I had been able to see it. Yeah, I wish I wish I had given the show a chance before the revival, although the revival definitely turned me into a Color Purple fan. Obviously, I had been a huge fan of the movie. I think Steven Spielberg doesn't get the credit he deserves for directing that. Like, Mm. that is so different than Jurassic Park or E.T., you know? And Any of them. (laughs) I mean, it's a beautiful film, and the cast is beautiful. And just the serious acting work of Whoopi Goldberg and Oprah before Oprah's like, yeah, I'm going to be a talk show host for a little bit (laughs) and a little bit meaning 30 years like it's just these oscar nominated performances and you know these powerhouses in true actors but this original film from the 80s it's truly it's it's a cavalcade of just some of the best african-american artists in hollywood just being allowed to act and really tell this important story for the african-american experience there are positive moments but it, it really peels back the skin to show, you know, the muscles and bones and guts of just what people have gone through in this country. So, yeah, I agree. Well, Christina, what have you been listening to? I want a little different direction, a okay. little more French bourgeoisie, 
And okay. I uh, listen to Les Mis. Dun 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 dun. I listened to the well. I watched. I rewatched. I should say the. I think it's the fifteenth anniversary, tenth yeah. anniversary, the big concert version that they did in London right. at Albert Hall. Nick Jonas was in it, but everybody oh. else in it was really incredible. That might have been twenty um, twenty fifth anniversary. I don't <laughs> think so. I, I don't even. We're old now, so we like, are. the years um, don't make sense anymore. They don't. I love that particular concert, and I love the way that it's arranged, especially when you get the three Valjeans doing oh, yes. that trio at the end. And that is actually really gorgeous. And I'm a huge Alfie Bow fan. I don't know. I'm not the biggest fan of Les Mis as really? a show. Yeah. Wow, I feel like I knew this, but I feel like I didn't know this about you. <laughs> it's not my favorite, only okay. because... And it's one of the reasons why I watched this particular production. Sure. Um, sorry, it was the 25th anniversary in 2010 at the Royal Albert. The reason I like that one is because it's about the acting and not about anything else. It's not about the turntable. It's not about okay. who's the best singer on stage. It is okay. solely about how do we best tell this story. Right. And for me, my problem is, is that Normally, when Les Mis is done, they're more inclined to hire singers yeah, rather I than mean, actors. To me, I don't want to watch you just sing at me for three hours. <laughs> I, yeah, no, that was the joke in New York for the longest time. It's like, well, if you can sing really well and you can't act and you can't dance, go be in Les Mis. Yeah, which is fine. And I, I'm not <laughs> saying that there's not value to it in that way. I, it's just not how I like to experience musical theater. I want right. to see people who know how to tell the story. It's a well-written book. And the book itself that it's based on, which I did not read. It's long. <laughs> it's a thousand pages. There's like, And it's called Les Miserables. I mean, I, that literally means The Miserables. I mean, it's such an icon of musical theater canon, but it's long. It's a long musical. And again, if you're not acting it. Yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't guessed it yet, our theme for this week's episode and our next one is the books you claim to have read. All right. <laughs> so we both chose to talk about successful musicals based on books that neither of us sheepishly have read. Um, <laughs> but they are books that a lot of people like to fib about and say, oh, yeah, I totally read Les Mis. Or I know that over half the people listening to this podcast did not read The Color Purple when they wrote that book report in high school. <laughs> you definitely watched the movies. So. And well, and the thing is, is that theme for the next couple of weeks can encompass a lot of flops. There are a lot of flops based on books you could have read. Oh, yeah. And just some would be things like Tale of Two Cities. Or Jekyll and Hyde. Or Jane Eyre. Or Little Women. Or my favorite, Carrie the Musical. Wait, was Little Women a, a flop? Oh, yes. Oh. Oh, yes. See? And, Shows how much I know. And books we claim to have read. But sometimes they're successful, I right? I did read Little Women. Oh, there you go. Okay. So that's I loved Little Women. And I read category. Jane Eyre. <laughs> okay. So that's a different character. The books you actually read. That's, <laughs> we'll do that. But there are sometimes, sometimes, you know, these epic uh, pieces of literature make great musicals, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, 
obviously Phantom is still on Broadway all these years later, and that's huge. Oh gosh, Les what Mis. are some Lamez? Yes, we we talked Matilda. about that. One. Matilda, yes. So sometimes it works. It absolutely works. But for the sake of today's episode, it did not work. <laughs> it did not. So shall we reveal this episode's flop? This week's flop is drum roll, Christina. <laughs> 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 Lord of the Rings. The musical. <laughs> All three books. In one musical. This musical exists. Uh, if you didn't know that, surprise, surprise. It, there was a lot of fanfare about 15 years ago. So for some youngins, they might not even know that this happened. Like, That's a fair point. Yeah, I mean, that was like, it was a while ago. I remember it like it was yesterday. But 15 years ago, <laughs> this was all the rage. This was going to be truly the biggest thing mm. the theater had ever seen right it's an epic so let's uh yeah. let's talk music lyrics all that jazz so music was by a few people a.r Rahman, i believe is how you pronounce his last name christopher yes. nightingale and vartina which is a finnish folk band they contributed as well and then lyrics and book were by matthew warchus I think I said that right. Who actually wrote the book to Matilda and Sean McKenna. Now, just to circle back on the music side, A.R. Rahman, who really was the composer of this piece and did a lot of the orchestrations, he actually wrote the scores for Slumdog Millionaire and 127 Hours. So he is a film score writer. And then he also wrote another musical, which was very much successful. Bombay Dreams. Bombay Dreams, which is actually, I went and listened to that for tonight, and I actually was like, wow, this is this is a fun musical. I like this. I mean, somehow Andrew Lloyd Webber is involved with that. I still don't understand how, but... He produced it, is my understanding. Oh, okay. All right. There yeah. we go. But anyways, moving on. The, the plot. plot. Set in the world of Middle Earth, the Lord of the Rings tells the tale of a humble hobbit who is asked to play the hero and undertake a treacherous mission to destroy an evil, magical ring without being seduced by its power. And before you ask, yes, they tried to cover all three books in one show. Okay, so that's the first reason why the show flopped. I'm sorry. When you take (laughs) something that is many things and you try to make one thing out of it, it is usually not a good idea. The movies themselves barely did justice to the books, which are very much books I claim to have read. I tried. I think I started with The Two Towers, not realizing it wasn't the first book. And I was like, I can't can't do this. I can't do this anymore. (laughs) I did read the first book. The other two are still on my list. I haven't gotten to them yet. But I did read the first book, Fellowship of the Ring. And I read The Hobbit, of course. Yeah, sure. But yeah, no, I agree. I... When I first heard about this musical, I was like, oh, so they're probably just going to follow the hobbits and their story. As I did the deep dive into this and realized that this is a three act musical, Mm. which, by the way, when it was in Toronto, had two intermissions. I mean, it was three and a half hours. Yep. Almost four with the intermissions. I assumed that they were just going to follow Frodo and the friends. And they didn't. They really tried to cover as much ground as possible, which I think is admirable 
and certainly a work of passion, which I can appreciate, but definitely from a audience perspective, doesn't make sense to me. I mean, not in one night. I mean, this was before Harry Potter and the Cursed Child decided we're going to do a two night shebang, which now they don't even do that. So, well, they don't in New York, but they still do it in London. Because they have more patience over there. They really do. I mean, I saw Cursed Child and I loved it. And I am so happy I spent an entire day at the theater. I am also a true Harry Potter geek. So right. <laughs> there's that. And I I don't know that I would have wanted to stay at the theater all day for this. Yeah. So starting with Toronto. Toronto happened in 2006. And the interesting thing to me about Toronto was, yeah, it was three acts with two intermissions. But also, one of the producers on this was actually a concert promoter. Oh, Michael Cole. Yeah, which is really interesting and I think smart in terms of the concept that they were going for, right? Because this really... I watched B-roll from Toronto and I tried to watch as much as I could from the West End. And it feels like a stadium show, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, well, you know what else Michael Cole famously was involved with. I actually don't. Please tell me. Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. So, oh. you know, with both of these, and I want to save Spider-Man for other times, so we won't get yeah. into the details, but both of these do make more sense as stadium shows. I don't know why they weren't developed for that first, you know? Yeah, like, I agree. In both cases. I feel like their fates would have been different had they chosen that route to begin with. Because in both cases, after Dust kind of settled and and people knew what was kind of on the table with these, there were big announcements. Like there was announcements that, you know, after this flopped in the West End, after Toronto, that it would go on a big stadium tour, which never happened. That yeah. makes sense to me. Do it like a yeah. show. Yeah. Um, but Toronto, Toronto. So we're in Toronto and that costs $30 million, just that production alone. And it ran for seven months. And it played to more than 400,000 people during that seven months because it sold out. And it won the best musical at the Dora Awards, which I guess are like the Canadian Theater Awards. Right. Would be my guess. And the thing is, is like the production was also directed by the lyricist and book writer, Matthew. I say that loosely only because there was so much fight choreography Right in the show and like staging in terms of that must have been done as a like combined effort between combat choreographer and director. How did you feel about the fact that it felt like most of the show was actually the fights? I didn't get a chance to see much from Toronto. I listened to the original London cast recording Mm -hmm. and I watched the documentary that I think National Geographic did. Yeah, National Geographic did a a famous documentary on this, uh, the London production. Granted, I know that changes were made, so I don't know what happened in Toronto, but it was very much the sense that everything was kind of still being puzzled together, like up until the last moment when the union said they had to finish it. Like there was like a moment in that documentary where the music supervisor was like, well, on Friday, I have to turn in the final score. I guess, guess I'm going to have to do that now. You <laughs> oh, know? Like, and I'm like, ooh, and this is supposed to be a positive documentary. But it, it, as far as all the footage I saw, it felt so similar to Spider-Man, not to get into it, where so much time was spent on visually what the sequences looked like. Yep. And sure, storytelling in that regard, but not as far as plot or 
you know, physical like dialogue and music as far as telling the story. It felt like so much emphasis was on movement, whether it was fighting, aerial choreography, special effects. There was a lot of aerial choreography. Set. Yeah, you get some of the story from that, and you have to when when a musical goes as fast to cover three books. But is that what we want to see in like the real theater? You know. It's, it's interesting to me that it was done on a proscenium traditional stage. There were some standout things for me that also I think ended up translating onto the West End because I did watch some of that as well. But like Gollum slash Smeagol, that was the most interesting thing for me to watch. Okay. Because of the work that that actor did in switching between characters and and right. uh really creating those two voices and the intricacy within that and his movement work as well i mean it was very a la andy circus but right for a bigger space you know and i had a lot of appreciation for that you know most of the reviews i read of toronto was that it felt like the gandalf and schmeagle show which is okay. funny to me, because uh, I I personally did not like the Gandalf in Toronto. <laughs> show, okay. I appreciated Schmeagol, but I did not like the actor who played Gandalf because he had no gravitas. It's unfortunate, but he has to follow Ian McKellen. <laughs> like, sorry, you have to be as good as you know. And the films were done so well and were casted so beautifully that if you don't live up to that it's going to feel strange on the stage, especially right. because this came out in 2007. So this comes out like right after the last film premieres. It's fresh it on the everyone's mind. Year? I believe so. It was close. Well, and The Return of the King won the Oscar for Best Picture too. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? I understand how that could be a big push because when Return of the King which kind of won an Oscar. I mean, a lot of people in the industry will tell you it's not just for that movie. It was kind of for the entire series and for what Peter Jackson did. For a fantasy film to win that like that, it was huge. It was. Huge to give the Oscar to them. 2003 is when Return of the King came out. Okay, it was close, really close. Me being the nerd that I am, I got the director's cuts of all of those with the four DVDs for each film. Yeah. And I would rewatch those all the time, you know, right. so like because you're catering to Lord of the Rings super fans oh, who are yeah. going to spend their money and spend their time to come and sit through this. And if you don't measure up, it's going to fall flat. So after Toronto, they already knew that they were going to the West End. They do a lot of rewrites, like you mentioned. And from what I understand, it really only took out about a half hour. And then they still kept it three acts. Yeah. But took away an intermission. Yeah. So it's a bit like watching a Shakespeare, one of the histories in that sense. Sure. The Lord of the Rings is epic literature. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's it's got gravitas to it. It's J.R.R. Tolkien. I don't think it's absurd to be like, well, you know, a prestigious adaptation of this work. Yeah, treat it like Shakespeare. But this didn't feel like Shakespeare. No, and I found this to be odd because especially on the West End with the West End cast. So I should say that there were four actors who moved from Toronto in their same characters through West End and through both West End contracts. Right. So Samwise, Frodo, Pippin and Gollum all started in Toronto and closed the show in London. But other than that, everybody else was recast by the time it got to London. 
I mean, that makes sense. You know, take who's successful and who who successfully has relationships that are working within it, because this is a I mean, the first book is called Fellowship of the Ring. You have to have people who have good chemistry on stage. And when I was watching the West End stuff, it really kind of felt like some of the actors were just kind of like waving at Shakespeare styling. Okay. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It didn't feel like they actually were grounded in that style of acting. I don't know. It was it felt so presentational, which some people say that Shakespeare is presentational. In my opinion, it's not if it's done well. And I can understand why you would want to like hire Shakespeare actors to do a show like this. But it it just didn't feel like they actually accomplished trying to get there. Do you know it, what I mean? It's so bizarre because there are really talented people who were involved with the show in both productions. I mean, obviously, the Queen, Laura Michelle Kelly, plays, mm. you know, Galadriel in the West End. She, I mean, she's Mary Poppins, for goodness sake. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, she's Mary Poppins so much so that when it didn't click on Broadway, they shipped her out to America mm -hmm. to go fix Mary Poppins. That's huge. To take an iconic Julie Andrews and to successfully cement yourself as the, the be-all, end-all for it, as far as the stage production is concerned. Like, she's got the grab. I mean, she really is like the Laura Benanti of the West End. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's so bizarre because everything that they're asking her to do in this musical goes against all of her talents and all of her like strong points. Like she's trying yeah. to do all of this aerial work. And again, in this documentary, it almost feels like a parody. Have you ever seen that parody documentary of Mamma Mia with Jennifer Saunders and no, uh, but I should Don French and it's this like stupid I love thing. They, French and Saunders. Yeah. They, it's a stupid thing they did on like one of the British sketch comedy shows. Yeah. But it's like all about the making of the Mamma Mia movie. And it's like, Mamma Mia, this time with more dancing or just stupid stuff. And that's kind of what this documentary feels like. Because at one point, Laura Michelle just keeps showing her and she's like, nope, that hurts. Nope, that hurts. Gonna need to put some aloe vera. Gonna take some cactuses and just shove them under my arms. Like I'm like, this poor woman is getting murdered by these aerial ropes. This is a beautiful actress and a beautiful singer. What are you making her do? Like, It's interesting you bring her up because when I was listening to the soundtrack, there's that song. It's really the best song in the show besides the Hobbit stuff, but it's right. called Song of Hope right. that she sings. And the Toronto cast, the woman who did it, was a very different kind of vocalist from her. And right. she almost had this like tribal... Yeah, feel to her, which I actually found really fascinating. And I was like, oh, that's such an interesting sound. And that makes so much sense for the show. And then I went and watched Laura Michelle and I was like, oh, and that's not what that's not what she's going to do, because <laughs> that's not her style. Like, that's not how her voice works. And she was beautiful in it still because it's a beautiful song and she has an incredible instrument. But it just was not the same feel. I actually like had to go and make sure that I knew which character was singing that song. I assumed that it was going to be Rosalie Craig, who plays Arwen, the other female elf. And I assumed that she was going to sing it because that made more sense for her vocal stylings. Right. Uh, and it was not her. It, it was Laura Michelle Kelly. But yeah, it's some of the songs are good. Like the I like the Hobbit songs. Those are really fun. They are very musical theater. They are very story forward and they are there to move the story forward. The rest of the show felt like I was listening to a film score. Yeah. 
And again, there are all these action sequences where nothing is actually being spoken. These fight sequences and these travel sequences and all of this stuff. I, oh, I don't know. It was just, it's difficult to get through a little bit. It I, is. And I love a good film, film score. Don't get me wrong, but I was looking for theatrical storytelling. And it was. Well, they also only had a 17 piece orchestra. That's crazy to me. So, like, when you're trying to do an epic film score sound with only 17 pieces in the orchestra, of course. It's not going to have the same kind of swell and the same kind of effect. It's just not. When you record a film score, not only do you get like a full symphony when you're spending that kind of money, but you right. also get to fill it with MIDI tracks if you want, you know? Like, <laughs> so sure. there's no way to like really do that unless they fill it with tracks, which understandably they don't want to do. What I found kind of interesting and fun was a lot of the lyrics in the songs are actually lifted straight from the books. And I thought that was admirable that they did that. That's true. It's like how I feel about Lippa's Wild Party versus Lacuse's Wild Party. Lippa lifts a lot of it straight from the poem, you know, and Lacuse makes his own choices, which is, I'm not saying that's wrong or right, but I prefer that Lippa found a way to utilize the original material and utilize the original words. And I love that these guys did the same. But it also means that you have to fill in more pieces that are musical theater-esque. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's like the difference between the Willy Wonka movies. The mm. original film, they decided, you know what? We're going to get real musical theater songwriters. We're going to get Anthony Newley and Leslie Brickus to come in. And they're going to Oompa Loompa. And they're going <laughs> to, you know, write things like I Want It Now. And I've Got a Golden Ticket. And it's beautiful. And then you get the Tim Burton remake. And he really went in and said, I'm going to take Roald Dahl's actual lyrics. Mm -hmm. And then you get Augustus Gloop nincompoop with, you know, a hundred <laughs> clones of the same actor. And... Look, when these epic, 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 epic authors write these things, I admire them. But I wonder, do they have music in mind when they write these lyrics or not? Because sometimes when you do set it to music, the same thing happens with Shakespeare. Sometimes you see Shakespeare because he has a lot of lyrics in his shows. Yep. And sometimes you're like, this doesn't make sense. You should have added words. Like, <laughs> add some words. Make it make more sense. Steve, our executive producer, always jokes every Shakespeare play he's ever done, he's ended up having to sing at some point in it. Because and he's done there. a lot of Shakespeare friends. And it's because they're there. And, and they're they, at the time they were sung. They had yeah. full choruses on stage. But yeah, no, I did you go and read any of these reviews? I did. Some of them aren't awful. But then no. like you get Ben Brantley, is, which is like, I am lost. You are lost. We're all lost. Like, what <laughs> is going on? I read one from The Guardian. They had an entire article because that particular reviewer had the privilege of seeing both the Toronto opening and the West End opening. Oh, okay, So cool. got to see both and kind of did a compare and contrast as well as going after some of the other reviewers saying he was saying that he's not a Lord of the Rings fan. He didn't okay. like the movies. He didn't want to watch them. He's never read the books. Interesting. But when he went to go see the the Toronto production, he loved it. 
he was like, it was transformative. I had so much fun watching it. I mean, there are, of course, moments that were like boring and I didn't care anymore. But for the most part, I actually really liked it. And he was like, when it moved to the West End and they made the edits they made, I actually felt like it lost its heart. It lost some of what made it special in Toronto. And he also like called out other reviewers saying that they're purist or they are above it all and like <laughs> are going to get snooty about it because it's Lord of the Rings on stage. I mean, he's not wrong, but at the same time, it's it's still not the best piece of musical theater I've ever seen, you know? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because it reminds me of, I, I pulled up this Guardian review as you were talking. Oh, good. And, okay. I, and I just saw Andrew Lloyd Webber's name there. And of course, he's there because he's worked with A.R. Rahman and mm-hmm. a lot of people involved in this. Um, it reminds me of the opening night of Carrie the Musical. There was a documentary film for German TV and Stephen King literally is like, I love the show. It's great. Yeah. You know, I mean, he thought he thought, yeah, they did it. They 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 turned my book into a musical. Mm-hmm. And and then you get Andrew Lloyd Webber, who just keeps getting asked by the reporter. So what do you think? And Andrew Lloyd Webber's like, I'd rather not say you really shouldn't be asking me. I'd rather not say. So there is a little bit of a, you know, some maybe maybe it does say that some of these things are not truly adaptable in the way that the classic musical theater lens can accept them. But there is something to be said about what these creatives do as far as trying to to adapt it for the stage, because what I gathered from the reviews, at least in Toronto, is a lot of fans of the book really actually enjoyed the production. Yeah, I got that as well. Yeah. And so it's like, well, then who's right then? Because if it if it felt true to people who are fans of this piece of literature, then maybe they did do a good job. It's just when 30 million dollars are involved, you know, that's not enough. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that's a really good point, Bobby. And I will say that watching some of those fight sequences was incredibly impressive. Oh, yeah. The fact so just so everyone knows, the stage was built with seven hydraulic lifts and platforms that could lift up and turn. So not only just lift up in separate pieces, but also can spiral and spiral down and then or lift up straight and then spin once it's up. I mean, and then it could turn into its own turntable. I mean, it's incredible. It was incredible tech. And for the fight sequences, what that meant is you could have maybe 20 guys on stage in a giant war sequence and one and an orc would get killed and then he would disappear behind a tower from like one of the hydraulic pieces coming up and then come back on alive as a different orc. Right. right. And so like that was incredible to watch. I mean, that that is true mastery of stage combat. And I mean that in its purest sense. And as someone who studied stage combat and sword play, that was so amazing to watch and the the athleticism and the artistry that goes into that should never be denied i mean it is insane you know what i mean 100 percent. you know it's interesting you know gone are the days although this had a giant cast it was like what 65 people on stage it was 65 in toronto and 50 on the west end yeah which is absurd for theater yeah. now. But like, you know, in the days of, of you know, Ziegfeld and all of those crazy producers at the turn of the century, bringing entire circus animals like elephants yeah. and lions and hundreds of people on stage, we don't have the luxury to do that anymore. And 
when we begin to adapt these bigger and better pieces of source material that call for these things, I mean, one of the hardest things to adapt, be it a play or a musical, are epic battle scenes or mm-hmm. chase sequences or it, things that you can do on film with you know huge budgets and hundreds of people. You can't do that in a Broadway or a West End theater. And they found out a way to do it, which I think is a lasting legacy of this. Because you're right, the oh, way yeah. that those battles happen and the actors can come around and it just feels like this constant moving, like you are watching an epic battle and it's 20 people. You know what yeah. I mean? That's yeah. huge. That's huge. It is. And I loved the the way that they costumed the orcs uh, and how they made that work okay. in terms of stature and feeling that sense of gravitas for each and every orc, right? Right. Because for those who haven't seen the movie, the orcs are really important and there are like millions of them. Yeah. Um, so you have to, and they're grotesque. And so you have to be able to portray that properly on stage, which can be difficult. And especially because all of those fighters aren't orcs the entire show. You can't just have them in specialty makeup the whole time. So yeah, I found it to be really, I found those sequences to be really interesting. And I really liked the Hobbit scenes. I just thought they were so sweet. And the guy who played Samwise was just like, if you were not gonna get Sean Astin on stage, Right. He he was second best, you know what I mean? And I really enjoyed him. And like I said earlier, that Gollum Schmeagel situation was really impressive um, because it's one thing to do that in a bodysuit on a green screen and like be able to perfect it as you go. And right. it, don't get me wrong, Andy Circus is a master, is I a mean. master. And one day maybe in my dream of dreams, I will get to work with that man and he can teach me just like a fraction of what it is he does because his body work is insane. Um, But the actor that they got for this, I think lives up to it, you know, Um, and certainly does it his way instead of trying to mimic Andy Serkis. Oh, it's unique. You know, it's the performances by the three of them specifically that make make me sad that the musical theater moments aren't stronger. Like, Frodo mm-hmm. doesn't really get a really great piece of musical theater sing, you know? No, and, but he does get to say, we haven't had a song round here since I don't know when. Yeah, he does get to say that. <laughs> he does get to say that. I mean, yeah, it's I enjoyed them without without the writing being up to par to really let them soar in Mm -hmm. the the, like they're not as iconic as performances as Elijah Wood and Sean Astin and and the cast of the film because the writing of those films allows those really special performers to excel you know and also the directing Peter Jackson did a really wonderful job with those movies I mean also those guys were on set together for four years making that and oh yeah that means you get to perfect it you get to change it while you're in the moment you get to make sure you find those perfect moments those perfect reactions and you don't get that luxury with something like this and you kind of have to just let the actors figure it out because you have to look at the whole picture yeah. and you have to make sure that it all happens within these three hours you know like you you have to do that all of this to say though friends that this show was actually nominated for five olivier awards i mean it's impressive you know there were yeah. impressive things about it 
And they were all they were all for the visual, which is uh, not surprising to me at all. Um, and I did actually think that the Gandalf in the West End lived up a little bit more to Ian McKellen. Okay. I don't know if you felt that way, but I, I also was comparing to Toronto. Yeah, I I like to me. I look at the cast list in in the person who I think is probably the most like performer that has gravitas that I know their career is Laura Michelle Kelly. Mm-hmm. And I feel like she even got swallowed up by it. So it's like, yeah, d- you can't blame the performer so much. They all are wonderful with the material they're given, you yeah. know? Yeah, no, with. that's a fair point. Um, and it was interesting to me that this, I mean, this show ran long enough for them to have to renew contracts and only yes. five or six of them renewed. Uh, and then had to replace with their understudies. They didn't do a recasting. They just bumped up the understudies and then closed a couple months later. But right. I mean, I don't know that there would be any way to get your money back on this. I mean, they spent $30 million American dollars in Toronto and then 25 million pounds, which means that it's probably closer to another 30 mil. 40, 35, yeah. 40, yeah. Yeah, and on the West End. I mean, that's... There's so much money for a stage production. And that's just initial costs. That's not even running costs. No, well, and it all gets lumped together. So, you know, when this closed, I don't know if it's been eclipsed at this point, but this officially was the most expensive flop in West End history when it finally, you know, closed down. And uh, as far as broad, you know, it's interesting because when it was in Toronto, I remembered it vividly. There was a lot of talk about Broadway and it almost came to Broadway. And I think it was determined that the set could not work in any Broadway theater that existed. I was going to say, where where would it fit? No, I think the only theaters that it would have worked in currently had long-running tenants. And I think, you know, the big one being the Minskoff where the the Lion King is playing. Oh, right. Okay, yeah. Because that has Pride Rock come out of the stage. So you've got that (laughs) below stage room. You've got to have a tower come out in Lord of the Rings. Like, you've got all these hydraulic platforms. So you have to put them somewhere. Well, that's like when they brought King Kong over from Australia. They had to wait till they had the right theater. Well, and then they also still had to take the roof off that theater and build it up an extra story to fit the puppet. Something insane. Something insane. Yeah, like they had to add a bunch to the top of the rig, basically. Yeah. Um, And like reinforce it because of how heavy that puppet was. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not surprised that there just wasn't an option. I honestly... I'm shocked that they didn't. You should just hire. If you're going to do shows like that, you need to just hire the guys who created Cirque. Because one, they know, they understand all that rigging and they do it successfully and safely. Well, and yeah, I know. And we won't get into uh, Turn Off the Dark with all of that. No, but, but there were safety issues with this. One of the hobbits got injured by a platform and they had to stall the performances for several yeah, days. Yeah, his leg got caught in between two of the mm. platforms and uh, somehow a couple weeks later was like, yeah, I'm good to go. I'm back at work. <laughs> I'm oh, like, my goodness. I would say that is like trauma and you may have a freak out on stage. I know I would have. Um, mm. Okay. Um, you know, and it's it's a lot. It is it is a lot. Um, 17 hydraulic drifts, lifts on a stage moving at all different times and like how many stage managers must they have had? They had to have had like two, maybe three backstage. And then you got to have PSM out out front calling it. Like, holy cow. With Jersey Boys, we had two. Really? Yeah. I mean, you know, Cirque, 
Cirque is interesting. I mean, Cirque hasn't really done well in in New York or on Broadway, you know, so there's there's something to be said that they may not have been able to figure it out either. You know, not that this came to New York, but in the world of theater, theater, yeah. Cirque has not been the greatest no, track I, record. I'm sorry, I should reframe what I meant by that. I don't mean like try and do an actual musical, but instead do what Cirque does best with their music within their shows, right? Where Got you it. have you have the singers and then there is this incredible choreography and artistry that's happening in terms of the physicality and clowning and and all it, oh, of it. that. And I think that that actually would have been more successful because then you're talking about like showing the pictures and then you still get that really wonderful ethereal sound that you, you know, is yeah. coming out of that music. And yeah. maybe you hire actual actors for the hobbits and let them have a couple of those moments and do some of that fun stuff. But then the rest of it becomes about this movement piece. I think, look, I think that that's one way you could go. I mean, if I could go back and be like, this is what you should do, I would be like, <laughs> why are we doing three books? The Hobbit is fine. And I would have been like, Bombay Dreams is interesting, not for this. And I would have said, uh, Dana P. Rowe, John Dempsey, let's give the West End another go. And because I just I, I I wonder what a really sentimental, you know, a touch of Disney with an adult flair to it, like a real musical theater score would have felt like in this world, because it's what's crazy is that these one of the producers own the rights to those animated musical films from the 70s, which are mm -hmm. so beloved. And those songs and those movies, both The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings trilogy, I think are much better than what ended up in this musical, personally. But Yeah. Do you think that if this concept had happened before the films, it could have been more successful because they weren't trying to live up to the visual of the film? That's an interesting question. I mean, of course, the other side is, would there have been any interest to even do it at that point? You know? Fair. Um, mm -hmm. But it's tough. You've got Elijah Wood. You've got these iconic cast of the movie and and they're really well-made movies they you are. know so it's like anything on stage even if you want to say that these are based on the books the movie's right there so i think if they had been separated from the films that maybe this could have been more successful mm. but it's like who is your audience for this because they're trying to present it as a piece of theater and it does feel a little cirque de soleil like you said it, it's a stadium show you know it's a it's way too long to put in a casino, but if this was 90 minutes, man, you know, this is your take a break from, you know, the slot machine. You've got a really strong cocktail and then you're back out to the tables. You know, it doesn't take a lot of brain power to follow this. No. And I, I think that if they had streamlined it and simplified it, it could have easily been a 90 minute casino show if you had done that and made it again more about the visual and more about hitting the major points and. Right. And like maybe only dealing with Sauron twice, right? Like introduction of him and then dealing with him at the end and then be done. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I to me, it doesn't make sense to do as a musical. I agree with you. Hobbit does. Hobbit, I could totally see. I don't know if it'll ever have a shot now. No, because this was such an epic failure. But I, I would be I, I would be interested to see what that would look like. And you know, finding someone who could play Bilbo who has that sense of wonder and that never-ending thirst for adventure. I mean, that's that's the type of leading character that you really want. I think that one of the reasons the films worked is because it was such an ensemble piece. Yeah. But for stage, if you don't have one of those childlike wonder 
characters, which you don't really, except maybe in Samwise, which I guess is why everyone loves him so much. Well, and it's it, the Hobbit story wise is built more like a traditional musical. You know, mm-hmm. it's an adventure story, and you have a you have one lead to follow, and you have a story, and you have like there are moments of his I want and his journey and his you know what happens when he uh, the climax of the story it just uh yeah i don't know if they'll ever try it i mean uh, personally at this point i'm like let's just scrap this and do the never-ending story yeah like because there's got to be room for a fantastical i i that's a sad thing is i i do i wish that there was a really successful musical that lived in a similar world like this because i think at least at this point, we definitely could do it on Broadway if it was well written. You know, I mean, I would argue Wicked is, but Wicked, I guess, close. is its own. It's kind of it's become its own like genre situation, hasn't uh, it? Yeah, but you're right. It it really is the gateway to something like this. It really is an adventure. It is a fantasy epic. It mm-hmm. is a lot of these things. I mean, Oz is very different from Middle Earth, but also very similar in certain ways. You know. Yeah, Wicked Wicked does it. I mean, I'd like to see more of it then. Like, just give me the never-ending oh, story. Oh, I would too. I would too. And I would actually love to see. It's it's so hard to do without, like, previous content. But I would love to see a fully original, mystical musical. Yeah. I, I, I recognize how difficult that would be. And I recognize not having the groundwork of, like, an intricate, detailed book makes that very difficult to write from. Right. But I have faith. I have a lot of faith that it will happen at some point. Like, look, if anyone just finally gets the nerve to be like, thank you, Learner and Lowe, for what you did for Camelot, we are going to move on. Oh, I would love for someone to rewrite Camelot. Yeah, look, the Camelot as exists exists, and we appreciate it, but like a real... Uh, you know Arthur Merlin yeah i just i would love that with with music that is that that is mystic and epic but also story driven for the you know complex characters like please just give us that give us merlin give us you know and it could be merlin centric or it could be arthur centric or it could be guinevere centric i mean we no, could go I full vote on guinevere centric i think that's what we should do honestly <laughs> Mostly because Christina was obsessed with that story and that time period of that myth, I guess, um, when she was a kid. So I vote Guinevere centric. Yeah, I don't know. This this happened. I'm happy it happened. I'm happy that it was an experience. And I should just to tag on here at the end, our executive producer, Stephen, did actually see this on the West End. Yes. And he walked away being wholly impressed by it he was like it was disappointing that there wasn't more musical theater to it but as a piece of stage art it was incredible to watch which is really the takeaway i got from most of the most of the reviews yeah i mean and look steven could have been a hobbitses so he could still (laughs) i mean he could still be a bilbo right isn't bilbo a little bit older than this he's he's more of a he's more Uh of a samwise Okay. At his heart. No, I I know what he would have been, and you know <laughs> he could still this... play it on the stage. I mean, no one's ever going to revive this. <laughs> Which, speaking of, so there was a lot of rumblings in 2013 that they were going to do a whole world tour of this thing, 
And uh, oh, wow. Oh, yeah. And it was supposed to happen in 2015. It didn't end up happening. <laughs> no announcement, no nothing after that initial buzz in 2013. Yeah, it's just with these shows. And it happened with the big three, Spider-Man, which again, not to get involved with King Kong, which you also mentioned, which could easily be a, an episode of this podcast one day. So I don't want to get into it. They absolutely make sense as worldwide stadium spectacles. But it's like, after they flop as hard as these ones do, they all have lost not even just millions, but tens of millions of dollars and like tens and tens of millions of dollars. Yeah. How do you find someone willing to put that money back into something like this? You know what I mean? Well, and as someone who did a stadium tour of a musical, I will say that they're also hard to sell. I mm -hmm. mean, I when when I did Barbie, it was a stadium tour. We were in like as Justin Bieber was leaving, we were loading in. You know what I mean? Like we were in the same venues. Yeah. Um, and like there were certain cities where we sold out, but our show was supposed to run for four years and do four continent tours. And instead it got cut short at nine months in Asia because they couldn't sell it before going because it is it's like promoting a concert. If you mm -hmm. don't sell enough tickets ahead of time, they cancel your show. They cancel <laughs> you going to the yeah. country. So um, I I get it. I get why it didn't happen. And ironically, King Kong was happening at the same time that we were in Australia. Oh, interesting. and it was also a stadium tour like that was what it was built as that show was built on its own stage yeah you know it, it it's interesting that you mentioned that they're really like concerts and you're following people like justin bieber it 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 makes me really fascinated that with all three of these musicals and again just for the comparison factor that none of them tried to do any kind of star casting whatsoever mm. and you know like in it just all three of them could easily have been done that way. You know, with this, it could have easily been Frodo. It could have been Galadriel. It, like, that could have been Florence on the Machine. I, I don't know if she was much of a thing in 2006, 2007. No, I think that she was still in high school. Okay, so Enya. <laughs> Whoever, you know what I mean? Enya's not popular at that point, but maybe Alanis Morissette. Just something. <laughs> like, yeah. someone, some draw above the title because, it, like... With this, if they had padded the cast with some kind of just pop rock names, because it's not like a show that really is relying on the actors. To no, act. it's so much the visual. I mean, you, the the Hobbits are definitely you need actors, and obviously Schmeagol, yeah. Gollum, and Gandalf. But everybody else, yeah, you don't have to be an actor first to make to sell it, right? You just have to be willing to sell the show. Yeah, no, that would be interesting. I, I honestly, no one comes to mind for stunt casting for this only because aside from Elijah Wood and maybe Sean Astin, I mean, at that point, Sean was not a name. He wasn't like he was in the 80s. You know, most of those actors were pretty unknown. They were not household names until after the film. And that's how it is with a lot of these epic fantasies. Yeah, yeah well, look, in... in Peter Jackson was smart enough to put a couple really familiar faces. Elijah Wood, Liv Tyler, things like that in the movie, knowing that he had to put some star power behind it. I mean, they could have cast an absolute unknown as Frodo, and I think the movie would have done fine. But it, there was a lot of uncertainty. No one knew what to expect. You know, it'd have to be a pop star or something. Yeah. Like, in order to sell out these arenas, that's the thing. It's like when you do Jesus Christ Superstar now, you know what I mean? It's like 
revivals that don't have names attached don't really last very long. And that's why that recent production that we- Lloyd Webber did was that stadium tour where he got namey people to do to do it, you know? Mm. And then coupled with his Jesus Christ Superstar Live with John Legend and everybody else is because you rely on people's familiarity with the piece to bring them to the stadium, but then you have to give them a reason to watch. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think that if they got David Hasselhoff, it would have gone great. I people, but in Europe, people would <laughs> have paid. <laughs> people would have paid to see his Gandalf, and I'm not ruling that out. I think it could happen. Like his Gandalf <laughs> would be, or him as King Kong. He could be King Kong. I'm he just, could be the puppet. He is the puppet. He is. Oh, yeah. I don't know if we're ever going to see this one again, though. I think that, I don't think so. I think it'll live on in our hearts. It'll live on our hearts. And there just isn't much of a, a musical theater score to be like, you know, 54 below sings Lord of the Rings, the musical. Because no. what do you sing? What are you singing? <laughs> the Hobbit stuff. Yeah, but it's like chanting. Like, it's a little bit like. No, the, the duet between Samwise and Frodo is really beautiful. Well, that can be in a concert of other material. That's what we'll we'll end with. Great. All right, kids. Well, that's it for our part one of the books you claim to have read. I know that, well, actually, I think a lot of our listeners might have actually read the um, Lord of the Rings trilogy. I would like to think so. I would like to think that we have some really awesome bookworms as part of our flopaholics. Yeah, I, look, but I, I have a feeling that our the book that you claim to have read next week is definitely one that nobody's done. Because while these are three books that are lengthy enough, our next one is based on like a thousand page epic. So... <laughs> Um, should we go ahead and tell them what it is since we're we're no clue Nancy's now? Yes, no clue Nancy's. <laughs> All right. The show we are covering in our next episode, ladies and gentlemen, is drumroll please. <gasps> Anna Anna Corinna. <laughs> because nothing says Broadway like Tolstoy. <laughs> All right, boys and girls, thank you so much for c- listening into episode five of season two of My Favorite Flop. Um, for those of you who may have just tuned into this one, there are four more in season two and like over 20 in season one. So uh, I imagine you're listening on some kind of podcast thing, but we're on all of them. My Favorite Flop. And where else are we, Christina? We're on every single social you could possibly consider at my favorite flop we are on instagram twitter facebook and the ticket talks and of course we're also on the web at www.myfavoriteflop.com um where you can find all sorts of fun magic but social is fun because you get to interact with us and we love that if you found something interesting in the episode send us a dm we love hearing from y'all and uh if you really like us you can head on over to apple Podcasts, click that little subscribe button to get alerted when our next episode downloads and then you can write us a five-star review to tell us how amazing you think we are (laughs) yes actually it's really helpful when you guys do that because what it means is that more flopaholics can find us which is exciting it's exciting and also the more of you that listen to us the more episodes we get to make (laughs) 
Yes, because making a podcast takes a lot of time, ladies and gentlemen. And speaking of a lot of time, there's about two weeks until another one of these drops. So until it comes, Christina, do you have any parting words for our listeners? I don't know what you're talking about. This pun has a nice ring to it. I watch the musical habitually. Here's the pun, though. Nine bees made their way to Mordor, and it was the Fellowship of the Sting. Ouch. That was a lot in one. <laughs> Lots of Easter eggs in that there's, one. There's Especially a lot that of... the last one, if you're a true <laughs> Hobbit fan. Gets you good. Sting. All right. Sting. Ouch. All right, kids. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.